The Lord is good, isn't he? Hey, let's uh, open up the book of Hosea. We are going to continue our study. If you remember chapters 1 through 3, woo, let there be light. <clears throat> if you remember chapters 1 through 3, provide for us the illustration that's the backdrop to interpret the book of Hosea, and that's Hosea's life, his marriage to uh, his wife, who was a prostitute, who was unfaithful to him, left him, and then God's call to redeem his wife, go back, buy her, and bring her back to his home. In that, within that backdrop, now from, from chapters 4 through 10, we're looking at the, the sin of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Hosea is ministering to them. He's reminding the southern kingdom prayerfully that they would learn from their uh, older sister, if you will, and not make the same mistakes that she is making. And so as we look, he's, he's laid out, just as he laid out in the illustration of the relationship between Hosea and his wife, now he's laying out that illustration through Israel and God, that God is the faithful husband and Israel the unfaithful wife. And so there's lots of terms that are going to be used for Israel. The main one here in Hosea is the word Ephraim. That's a prominent city that was there in the northern kingdom. And so we have that is the beginning. This chapter is going to be dealing with the iniquity of Ephraim. So if you remember the, the previous chapters we've gone through, what was the issues? What was the issues of unfaithfulness for the northern kingdom? One, they didn't know the Lord and they didn't know his word. Number two, they didn't care that they didn't know. And then number three, we're going to delve into the iniquity of Ephraim. In Proverbs 28, 13, the path of wisdom tells us this. Whoever conceals a transgression will not prosper. Uh, if I say it simpler, whoever hides a sin will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. So the path of wisdom laid out. Many years before, right, the path of wisdom declares this concept that whoever confesses and forsakes, so you have the prophets calling to Israel saying, hey, this is a problem. You need to turn from your sin, right? Turn to the Lord. Just like Jesus talking about the tax collector who beat his breast and only said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God grants him mercy, right? So you have this right here, whoever conceals that transgression does not prosper we can't continue in sin paul would write in romans chapter 6 how can we who have died to sin live any longer in it we we, we cannot continue in that place we must confess forsake and cling to christ right and so here's what he lays out for us we're going to just back up a little bit and take a look at hosea 6 11 in verse 11 of chapter 6 for you also o judah a harvest is appointed, so he's reminding the southern kingdom, pay attention to the north. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely, the thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. So as he's looking forward to the promise of restoration and redemption of the people, he lets them know that the restoration depends upon the exposure 
of their sin. So before God redeems, before God restores, he brings the knowledge of sin. Before you call out for a Savior, you acknowledge your need for a Savior, right? If you don't know you need a Savior, nobody's calling on the name of the Lord, correct? And so this is what he's describing. He's saying, look, this is what's going to happen. There will be the revealing of the wickedness of Ephraim. And this concept is such that you can't hide your wickedness from God. Is there some way we can do wrong and God doesn't see? Right? There's no way that we can hide it. In fact, Proverbs, again, 15.3 tells us this. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. They keep watch on evil and the good. There's nowhere we can go that God doesn't see us. Uh, the 139th Psalm says the same thing. I make my bed in heaven or in the grave. Does the Lord see me both places? Yeah, there's nowhere for me to go that God cannot see. So what are the sins he's describing for us here in chapter 7, verse 1? They're lying. It says, he says they're dealing falsely. Right? One of the things God hates, if you look at the book of Proverbs is um, weighted scales, cheating people, lying to get ahead, right, to take advantage. The second thing he, he lists for us in chapter 7, verse 1, is they're stealing. They're, they're looking for ways as thieves to break in, to steal. And uh, we'll see in verse 4, they are adulterers. Uh, Hosea 7, 4, he says they are all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. From the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. <clears throat> They're all adulterers. Verse 5 of Hosea 7. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with a heat of wine. So they're drunk. You have drunkenness. You have adultery. You have thievery. You have lying. These are the things the Lord is just laying out before the nation of Israel. This is their unfaithfulness to God. This is the practices that they have. And so the Lord wants them to understand he knows. I think in some ways they're living under the auspice, the idea that God doesn't know. That as long as we just do the things we're supposed to do, right? So God doesn't know what I'm sinning as long as I bring an offering. As long as, I, as long as I go to synagogue, as long as I go to the place of worship when I'm supposed to and I punch that, that time card, then, then God's happy with me. It's, it's not really an issue of my sin. But it says in Hosea 7, 2, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. Now the psalmist declares that when we confess our sin, what does the scripture tell us? How far does he move it? As far as the east is from the west, right? So it's, it's gone. It's out of the way. And this is a call to God, to, to the nation of Israel, to, rec, to, to confess, to acknowledge their guilt before the Lord and ask for pardon. And God would grant this pardon. But he's saying, look, there's no acknowledgement. Now their deeds surround them. They're before my face. He's saying, I'm surrounded by your wickedness, by the things you do, and he wants them to know they are in a place of accountability before God. Apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, Paul writes to us, that we are children of wrath. Do we understand what that means? The, Paul would write to us, apart from Jesus Christ, we are darkness. 
But when we come to our Savior, he pardons our sins. Amen? And he makes us children of light, not children of wrath. And so the, the Bible would declare in Thessalonians, right, that we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this call through the prophet in the Old Testament is going to Israel. Now, <clears throat> Israel is before the cross, but they are still able, just as David, to call out to the Lord and ask for pardon. You remember what the scripture tells in Psalm 51? Psalm 51, the Lord said, or David says uh, to the Lord, there's no sacrifice or I would offer it. The sacrifice God wants is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's a heart broken over our sin. A contrite spirit, meaning a spirit that is turning from their sin and looking to God for pardon. And what did God do to David? He pardoned his sin. Were there consequences? Yes. But did he pardon his sin? He did. He did. And so this is the same call that's going forward here. In Hebrews 4.13, it tells us this. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So Jesus Christ delivers us from that. We need to understand that. If you are a part of the body of Christ who by faith has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know, there's no fear of judgment because Jesus Christ has borne that judgment for us. He's taken us as children of wrath and made us children of light. But if you're not, there will be a day where you give account. The Bible calls it the great white throne, right? And so where the living and the dead, the mighty and the weak will all stand before his throne and give account. And so here... The Lord wants them to know, listen, you're going to give account. And, and the, this is all part of God's mercy. It's God's mercy and grace that he's telling them. Does he have to tell them? Does God owe them something? No, because they're, they're like an unfaithful bride. He doesn't owe them anything, but he's warning them. He's telling them. He's using the prophets to woo them. Come, repent. Judgment is at hand. Look at verse 3. But by their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. Now, what he's saying is what happens when a nation is in decline? You can see this in the news today. When a nation is in decline, in, uh, in rebellion against God, eventually the rejoicing of the wickedness of the people reaches all the way up to the leadership of the nation. So the king is glad about the wickedness going on around him. Is there another way to, to consider the way our president views the situation in our world today where uh, wicked is called good and good called evil, right? Light for darkness, darkness for light, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. The idea of rejoicing over the, over the wickedness. Um, and so the deceit of the people is accepted and tolerated and there's no call for vigilance there's no call for a return there's no call for repentance even from the leadership in verse 4 they are all adulterers so he's saying of the nation of israel they're all unfaithful you're all unfaithful they are adulterers like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire so 
I don't know if I should say anything. Should I say anything, babe? So, so. No. No, I'm not going to talk about who's pregnant. I'll let everybody. I'll let everybody else find that out on their own. No, this is about the problem here with the baker. <laughs> the baker who ceases. The baker who. You guys can hit Kathy up later. The baker who ceases to stir the fire, the, the bread, the things that are cooked within that fire don't cook properly. The heat is not distributed right. Anytime, if I'll, you come over to our house for dinner, Kathy's going to put bread in the oven to toast some bread maybe or something for dinner, and then she'll sit down and start talking and forget until the smoke detectors go off. That's our alarm that the, that the bread is now ruined. And I have to carry it outside on fire and throw it in the grass. So this is what's happening. He's saying, listen, what's going on? They're, they're all adulterers. They're unfaithful. And they're, they're not even considering the things that they're doing. Um, they're not taking care of the bread. They're not taking care of the dough. They're, they're breaking down in the most basic uh, issues of life. Their sin is everywhere evident. And verse 5, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine, and he stretched out his hand with mockers. So we're going to have one of the things we see in the decline of the nation. You have drunk leaders and leaders lacking discernment. So they're just heaping up for themselves more fools to guide the already foolish. That's hard to believe, huh? How could something like that possibly ever take place? Verse 6, he goes on. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All the kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So what's happening is now the leaders, they're wicked, and the people, no matter who the leaders are, rise up in opposition to the leaders. They get angry at the the leadership and eventually they devour they they kill the leaders and then the new leaders come on everybody celebrates until everybody gets upset with the new leaders and it all starts over again so you have this instability within the nation leaders are devoured and nobody's calling out for the lord so you just have chaos breeding chaos breeding chaos the downward spiral of the nation of israel uh, he goes on in verse 8 and says, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. So first, Ephraim mixes himself with the people. There, there's a failure to maintain the separation unto God. A failure to, to maintain separation unto God. I'm not saying separation from the people. I'm saying separation unto God. They're doing the opposite. They want to be like all the other nations. They want to worship like all the other nations worship. They want to do the things all the other nations do. They want to be like everyone else. But they don't want to be set apart to God. They don't want to be faithful to God. They want to be a part of everything else. The other thing this verse says is that they are a cake not turned. Here's a better way to say it in English. They're half-baked. You know, you ever had a half-baked cake? 
It looks so promising, doesn't it? And then you get inside and it's all gooey on the inside. It's, it's, I know some people like half-baked. I, I'm a crispy edges guy, so I don't want the half-baked ooey gooey. Before you make the cake, I'll, I'll lick the stuff, yeah, but after cooked, I don't want it. So he's saying, look, they're half-baked. Now, what's the issue of being half-baked? They are half-hearted toward God. And nowhere in Scripture does God condone half your heart. Does God want half your heart? Does God want half your love? Does he just say, you know what, it's cool. You can split your love between me and the world. Right? What, when Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All your heart. So we want all our heart devoted to the Lord. And so the idea, they're, they're half-baked. They're, their hearts are not, are not given to the Lord. And one of the ways that's seen is what happens when they're in trouble. Where do you go when you're in trouble? When things get hard. Psalms 56.3, the psalmist writes, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Now, that's hard to do. I'm not saying that that's a, a simple thing. But the point is, when the Lord has all your heart, he's quick to your lips. You know, there are times in the early days of my, of my life and my walk with the Lord where something bad would happen and bad things would spring to my mouth. And I, maybe you've heard the story before. Me and Jason were out hunting and Jason had this wild idea. Jackie, we just need to get out to the, where the elk are like at 3 in the morning. So that all sounds cool, except the woods are pitch black at 3 in the morning. You can't see nothing. So we get in the woods, and we're walking through this, br- we're walking through this brush, and it's the berry brush. You guys know what else lives in the berry brush? So we're always rousting bears out of the berry brush. And so we're walking through the berry brush, and I'm thinking to myself, man, we're going to step on a bear. We're not, we'll never even see him. It's so stinking dark in here. And about that time, I step on a sage grouse. <laughs> now, I don't know it's a sage grouse, but it comes up and gets stuck in my arms and my chest, flapping its wings. And all my mind saw was I'm being eaten by a bear. In the old days, there's a lot of things that might have come out of my lips. But Jason still laughs today because there's high-pitched squeal of Jesus that come out of my lips. Now, he still mocks me and laughs about the Jackie screaming Jesus in the middle of the woods. But I felt like it was a bit of a victory. There's a lot of things I could have done. And I was thankful that the, the, the words that were coming out of my lips was Jesus. And I think that kind of illustrates the idea, right? It's just the reality that where, who am I reaching for in my fear or in the, in the dark woods when the sage grouse is trying to get you, right? We want to be able to call upon the name of the Lord. And so he's saying, we, when you're afraid, put your trust in me. But he's saying, no, you're half-baked, you're half-hearted toward me, and you're more concerned with mixing with the other nations than you are with being set apart to me. And then he goes on in verse, uh, verse 9 <clears throat> with the, the people, Ephraim, having an attitude that don't want to return. They're, they don't want to come back. It says 
in verse 9. So strangers devour his strength, listen to this phrase, and he knows it not. Look at the next phrase. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. Same phrase. And he knows it not. You remember when the Bible tells in the book of Judges that the Lord took the spirit away from Samson? You remember what it said? The Lord took the spirit from Samson and what? He knew it not. Can you imagine not knowing that you don't have the Holy Spirit? But that's how estranged Israel is from God. That's how estranged. So strangers devour their strength. They're, they're not able to stand, but they don't know they're not able to stand because they don't know that the Lord is not with them. And their time is getting short. How does he signify that? You have gray hairs and you don't know it. The Bible tells us in Psalm 90 verse 12, so Lord, teach us to number our days. Why? Why should we number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom? What's a heart of wisdom? I know I'm a day closer to, to seeing my Lord and Savior. And there are things that I, as a, as a Christian, right? As a Christian, there are things I want to accomplish for Jesus. I, I want to hear as a believer, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to come up with excuses of why I should wait till later. So the Lord is saying to, through the psalmist, teach us to number our days so we're aware how far down the road we're getting. Now, none of us know how long we have, right? We don't know how many days that we have. But basically what God's saying is we, we ought not to waste time. Paul said it's high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Right? We're closer. We're moving in that direction. And so here he's saying they don't recognize what's happened to them. They don't understand what's going on around them. And then look at verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord. So they are stone-faced, proud. No, no, I don't need any help. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine, but the Lord's like, I'm not with you. Don't you know? Can't you, can't you realize the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they will not return. They have a failure to seek God. A failure to seek God. If there's something you would say about the world in rebellion to Christ today, it would be a failure to seek God. There's no desire to want to know God at all. He's <clears throat> Now, I also want us to understand that's not around the world. You know, it's interesting, the last conference that we were at, one of the things they indicated at the conference is the amount of Christians, people who are being born again in China is growing so fast that there's a day coming when China will have a greater population of believers than the United States does. That's, that's a good thing, right? So God's moving and things are happening. And, and we, unfortunately, are watching maybe a little bit of what we see with Israel the downward spiral of our nation in rebellion against God. And so, hey, the Lord says, we need not to have a failure to seek God. The people need to know. Now, what can we do for our nation? Well, you and I are supposed to be salt and light, right? So we want to be that witness to the world that is challenging them to seek God, to seek his face. And so rather than catching ourselves right 
wearing white robes and climbing to a mountain and waiting for Jesus to come save us, which I'm excited about him doing, we want to be busy about doing what he's called us to do. Amen? We want to be fulfilling the purpose for which he's called us. Okay, the last thing here, excuse me, in verse 10, nor do they seek him for all of this. So there's no reliance on, on the Lord, no return to the Lord, and no recognition of what's happening around them. And, and it's interesting because, you know, just as we go through the minor prophets and they're looking at Israel, and <clears throat> I'm not necessarily a big fan of the Harbinger series, but I see parallels between the decline of the nation of Israel and the decline of the United States, just as a uh, uh, you know, a, a, a study in historical things. And it's interesting to see those same kind of attitudes that we see laid out before us. Now look in verse 11 and 12. We're going to see where, where are they? They're not relying on God. Who are they relying on? In verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. So the Lord's like, they're trying to, to solve their problems by going to the very places who are going to be the cause of their destruction. Assyria, whom they're reaching out to, is the country that's going to destroy them. And they first they make a treaty with them, and then in their treaty that they make with them, they decide, well, we don't want to pay you anymore. And Assyria comes down and says, oh, it's fine, we'll just take you all. So they have gone to the source of their destruction. So the Lord says, you're like a silly dove. You don't know what you're doing. You're just flying around. How many doves have bounced off the windshield of your car? Especially when they start harvesting grain, right? You ever notice how they stand in the middle of the road so full of grain they can't fly? And then... It's terrible when you do it on a motorcycle, just so you know. A big old fat dove on a motorcycle bouncing off your face is not comfortable at all. But right there, they just eat so much and they, they, can't, they can't get out of their own way. Their character is like that of a silly dove, easily deceived, and they have no sense about what they're doing. And they're also calling out to other nations. Look what it says, verse 12. As they go... I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. Listen, I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. So the Lord's saying, look, they're still his people. He's, gonna, he's going to discipline him. One of the beautiful things that we read in the book of Romans is the phrase where Paul says, so has God cast off Israel so they'd be utterly destroyed? And then Paul says, certainly not. He has not cast them off. So the, the idea here, the Lord is saying, look, there's going to be discipline. There's going to be things that are going to, that will be done, the chastening of the Lord to bring about the discipline that's needed for his people. Look at Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, which we'll get to shortly. In verse 3 and 4 says this, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, 
Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Who will bring us down? Oh, the Lord will. I think about that often when I, when I see the big swelling of, of pride in the United States, and yet I, I think about our unwillingness to repent of our sin. Uh, I'm excited. I'm hopeful about the news out of the Supreme Court. I hope that we'll see an end to, to Roe v. Wade and the wickedness of that. I'm, I'm hopeful, but I've learned enough in the last couple of years to not believe anything I read in the news or see on the news or hear anywhere else. You know, we'll see what happens. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for that. But e even in the wings of that, do you see the wickedness of the world that desires that so much? It's the, the responses are crazy. Then long ago, we should have gave up the whole idea that, that they don't know what they're doing. No, they know what they're doing. If you listen to the rhetoric that they're spouting, they know what they're doing. They know, they know that it's murder. And they don't care. And they want the right to do it. So we look at that and we think, man, there's, there has to be, even if I didn't think of anything else, and there's plenty of sins to reach out for, even if I didn't think of anything else, you know, uh, in the United States of America, since the inception of uh, Roe v. Wade, 1.5 million babies a year. So that's a lot. If... You know, Cain killed Abel, and the Lord came and said, Hey, Cain, where's your brother? His blood cries out to me from the ground. What does the Lord say about that? So, so anyways, the Lord's saying, Hey, I can bring you down. The Lord will quill the rebellion of man against God. Now, he goes on in, uh, in verse 13 uh, to describe their rebellion, which is primarily the sin we're talking about. What's the sin? Rebellion against God. So he says in verse 13, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. Listen to this. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. So the Lord is saying, is he, is he saying, I, w I wouldn't forgive you? No, he's not saying I won't forgive you, but he's saying I would redeem you. But instead, you're speaking lies against me. Charging the Lord with wrong, uh, saying that, that their God is okay with all the things they do, whatever their, their excuses might be before the Lord. They have strayed from him. They disobey him and rebel against him. And they ignore the love of God or the mercy of God that would redeem them. It says in verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Now that is how they would worship the deities around uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Oh, we're shy of wine. We're shy on our harvest. Okay, well then we will... Uh, go out to the temple of Baal and we'll cut ourselves. You remember Elijah and the high priest of Baal? And they're crying out to their God to come and take up the offering. You remember? What did they do? They danced around and what's the scripture say? They cut themselves. 
they cut themselves trying to appease Baal to answer their prayer. Here, the Lord's saying, listen, they don't cry to me. They don't do what Jesus described in the tax collector. They don't do what David did in Psalm 51. Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Right? David's saying, look, you're the one, you're the one I've offended. They don't, they don't do that. Rather than these things, they cry on their beds, wail about life being hard, and they cut themselves uh, for grain and wine in a cry out to the help of other gods. Verse 16, they return, but not upward. So the, the Lord, the concept is that they're not, they're not coming to him. They're going back to a, a system. They're going back to say, you know, because they're so used to worshiping Baal, they're just adding God to the mix. They add Yahweh to the mix. Okay, I'm going to go worship Baal. I cut myself. And then I'm going to go take a turtle dove to, to God. And the Lord says, you're returning, but not upward. You're not coming to me rightly. Because God doesn't want how much of the heart again? He doesn't want half. He doesn't want to share you with Baal, right? He doesn't want to share Israel with the other gods. He, he wants them to recognize their unfaithfulness and cry out to him. And he, the scripture is saying, I would redeem you. I would do it. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Now, treacherous bow I would not want to use a treacherous bow is like this there's a if you go to advantage archery there's a picture on a wall of what happens when a bow breaks while you're trying to shoot it and the amount of slivers from the arrow that goes in the back of your hand and up and through your arm it looks like a thousand little webs coming out the tips of the fingers and just all looks bad. And it's a picture of a real guy's hand. So it actually happened to somebody. So if there's any chance my bow is not okay, I don't pull the string. The Lord is saying, you're like a treacherous bow. Yeah, I can't use you. I can't use you because you're so dangerous. You're so, you're so uh, full of deceit wickedness and sin that that you can't be used listen he says um although although i trained and strengthened their arms yet they devise evil against me they want to their rebellion all the problems are god's fault but they're running to baal for solutions or they're running to egypt for solutions or they're running to Assyria for solutions. They return, but not upward. They're like that treacherous bow. Their princes, their leaders, will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. So the leaders, their tongues are full of, of insolence. And this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So the idea of insolence is they're, they're rude, arrogant, and they have no respect. So they, it's a similar word that God would use for uh, the Antichrist. He has a proud tongue, an insolent tongue, uh, uh, a tongue that speaks 
crazy things that they probably ought not speak, right? And so he's saying they have a, an insolent tongue. This is the, the disaster of their pride. They, they ignore God's love. They deny his strength. They go other places, and their pride keeps them in a place where the judgment of God is going to fall. And then the northern kingdom is going to go into captivity, and no one's going to return. There's no return from that exile. So the, the northern kingdom is going to all go into slavery and live out their days. And they, the reality is, here's what you need to understand. There's no one there saying, oh, Lord, bring us back. They don't want to go back. People ask me all the time, hey, Jackie, I don't, you know, maybe I accidentally committed the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? Well, if you're asking me that question, you haven't done it. You haven't done it because you wouldn't want, you don't care. You would not care at all about being right with God. The idea that you have a desire to be right with God, to be in a right relationship with him, that's not what the Bible says about the, the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The hearts of those people are in such opposition that the Bible has a word for it. It calls it apostasia. Apostasia is a departing. <clears throat> the idea of departing is departing and you don't want nothing to do with it. Just like a marriage where, where a husband departs from his wife or a wife from her husband and they don't want to have nothing to do with each other ever again. And the Lord is saying that's, that's what it looks like to leave, to abandon the place where salvation is found, the place of the Lord. So they're going to fall. The leaders are going to fall because of their lack of respect, their proud tongues. And they will be, this will be their derision in the, in the land of Egypt. They're going to become uh, uh, ridiculed or mocked in the land of Egypt. The southern kingdom, when they face their judgment, which is going to come in about 150 years from this one, the southern kingdom is going to run to Egypt to be saved. And Jeremiah the prophet is going to tell them, if you go to Egypt, you're all going to die. If you stay here, you're all going to live. And Jeremiah must have drove Jeremiah crazy because literally every time he told them to do something, they did the opposite. It's like talking to teenage children. So, so Jeremiah tells them. And they, they all, it's hilarious because in, that, in the end of Jeremiah, <coughs> Jeremiah, they bring Jeremiah to him and they go, Jeremiah, tell us, what does the Lord want us to do? And Jeremiah's like, why are you asking me? Whatever I tell you, you're not going to do it. No, really, Jeremiah, we're going to listen. The Lord said, don't go to Egypt, stay here. And they said, okay, hey, let's go to Egypt. So they go to Egypt and Jeremiah went with them. And they all perished in Egypt. Jeremiah didn't leave the people without someone there, a light, salt, to call the people to repentance. Here in the northern kingdom, they are like that unfaithful wife of Hosea, right? <clears throat> and God calling them back. But the warning, prophecy of Hosea is not for the northern kingdom. The warning from the prophet Hosea to the north is for the southern kingdom because they will return, right? There is a remnant there, right? God's going to bring them back. He's going to redeem them. 
Remember in the south, a lot of times people have misnomers about the northern and the south. Ten tribes to the, to the north, two tribes to the south. That's just talking about their, their basis. The, the reality is everyone who wanted to worship Yahweh stayed south. And everyone who wanted to rebel went north. So you had representation of 12 tribes to the north. And you had representation of 12 tribes to the south. And the Lord has a remnant in the south that he is wooing when he says, don't learn from this. Learn from this experience of the north. Because like Hosea saved his wife, I'm going to save you. And that's the story of redemption in, throughout the Old Testament. And ultimately we see that fulfillment right in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can study the book of Hosea. And, and God, I, I recognize and I understand this book is written to the northern king, uh, the northern tribe of Israel. And it's a historical account of the prophecies given to the north. But Lord, I pray that we would learn from their mistakes. That we would recognize that that we have a great God and Savior, and He is calling us and challenging us in these last days to be salt and light to the world around us because there are people who are perishing. So Lord, I pray that you would fill your church with boldness like Hosea, like your prophets of old, that, they, that we would choose to stand on the corner and call men to a relationship with Jesus Christ our great God and Savior, to challenge men to change their direction and to call upon the through which we might be saved. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in and among your people, Lord God. And as we draw nearer to that day, may we found ready, prepared a people who know you who know your word, and who live our lives out committed to Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Lord, we give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.